Welcome to Focus on the Family's weekend broadcast. We hope the following program will challenge you and encourage you in your faith journey. You know, let's do all that you have said. I'm with you heart and soul. And in marriage, I think that's one of the best responses when you know, when we move in and out of a different season and God will lay different things on our heart, different callings or a different dream or even maybe a, a new bucket list item. That's our colleague, Dr. Greg Smalley, speaking about the power of dreaming together as a couple in your marriage. And you'll hear more from Greg and his wife, Erin, on today's episode of Focus on the Family. Your host is Focus President and author Jim Daly, and I'm John Fuller. Greg and Aaron are doing such a great job leading our marriage and family formation team here at Focus. They're wonderful speakers, prolific authors, and so passionate about helping husbands and wives thrive in their marriages. And of course, uh, they've been on this program many, many times, but today we want to feature something special. We've got an episode from our new crazy little thing called Marriage Podcast, which they began hosting in March of this year. This is a weekly podcast about a half hour long, and Greg and Aaron not only share their expertise as professional counselors, but they are very open and authentic about their own marriage experiences. Quite funny, may I add. (laughs) I really encourage you to check out this new podcast from Focus on on the family. And we'll have a link to that at our website. We certainly will. And that site is focusonthefamily.com slash broadcast. Now, Greg and Aaron also have a book with the same title as the podcast. It's called Crazy Little Thing Called Marriage. And we're going to recommend you get a copy of that book uh, for your marriage. And now, Jim, here's how the Smallies began their podcast episode about learning to dream together. I'm so glad that we're talking about transitions and how do we dream well together, because these are important aspects of marriage that I don't think people often really talk about. I know, Aaron, for us, mm-hmm. one time really stands out. It was a, You talk about a huge transition, really about pursuing a dream that you had had since you were a little girl. Yeah, I always wanted to adopt a little girl because I was adopted, and we had talked about that before we got married, and several years into our marriage after having three biological kids, we decided to begin exploring adoption. Yeah, and this really became a shared dream. I mean, the more that I understood that, boy, God really had placed that on your heart. I loved it. So one time we even started praying for adoption. We decided that we were wanting to pursue a little girl. We were going to name her Annie. So we started praying specifically for an Annie. And we prayed and prayed and prayed. Yeah. And nothing happened. And a good friend of ours, remember that conversation yes. in my office about his yeah. trip to China? And he told us about a little girl who we later found out her name was Annie. And so thus our dream came to fruition. And we began walking that out and began the adoption process and brought little Annie home July 4th, 2010. You know, what really stands out to me about that season is we were trying to adopt Annie is that for me, it was always about, you know, I can't wait till we get her. Really looking back, the power of you and I dreaming together was not actually getting any, although we love her and she's I'm been glad in you're saying that <laughs> for what twelve years now. But it was really it was the the pursuit, the journey, mm-hmm. the day to day as we prayed, as we dreamed, as we talked, as we cried, as we grieved what wasn't seeming to happen. That's the true power of dreaming Absolutely. I don't know that we ever had a season where we were more connected because we were moving 
in such unison towards the same goal, but it was that journey that really ignited our hearts. And we've had several other experiences like that as well, but that one really stands out. Yeah, and as we transition through different seasons, dreaming is so important. You know, we had a great conversation with our good friend, Dr. Julie Slattery, about how do we navigate transitions in our marriage? You know, how do we find ways to dream together? She's an author, speaker, and the founder of Authentic Intimacy. So let's listen to what Julie had to say. As you and Mike have, have made this big transition into emptiness, uh, other people are, I mean, we're all constantly moving in and out of different seasons. Could be a different job. It might be we've sold a home, a child has started school, whatever that season is. What has really helped you guys navigate out of one chapter and and kind of into another chapter? I think one is recognizing the seasons and they are chapters and that gives us permission to grieve and to say goodbye to a chapter. Because we don't do that well. No, we don't. Yeah. Yeah, I, I remember when we were done having children, like just needing to take a moment and to grieve that I'm never going to be pregnant again. We're not going to have a little baby again. Like, just to say this is a season and there's a loss here and it's okay to name it. Uh, And the same with Empty Nest. Like, it is a season and there's a loss and there's a time to look at the pictures of the boys when they were little and remember what it was like for them to come down for breakfast every morning and not to glorify it because there were certain there's certainly other parts of it where it's like I'm kind of glad that one's over but I don't think we do a very good job of remembering and acknowledging seasons unless it's like a big birthday or something but it also gives us the opportunity to thank God for the season and to ask for his vision for a new season Mm. and to begin to vision cast and dream together that helps a lot Well, there's something so powerful about doing that together as a couple, Mm -hmm. because then it moves you together into that new season and really just connecting as far as what is this like for you? Well, this is what it's like for me, and this is what I'm feeling, and, you know, having that opportunity just to care and connect, but then moving into, okay, what's it going to look like? Yeah. We get to decide. And I think there's something in our American culture that tells us that every season is going to be better than the next. Mm. You'll even have people tell you, I know this is going to be great, you know, like look forward to this. And that optimism can be somewhat helpful, but I think it also keeps us from lamenting. Mm -hmm. So there are couples going through seasons where it's not going to get better. Maybe they're facing a terminal illness or they're facing the loss of a child and the optimism of, no, it just keeps getting better. It's not true. God keeps renewing us. He keeps building the inner person. We have eternity to look forward to. That is the optimism of the Christian faith. But sort of the American dream keeps us from recognizing that there are losses and there are things that we let go of that we're not going to get back. But then that also frees you to say, okay, in every season there is something that I can thank God for. There is something we can rejoice in. What is it? Uh, And I think that perspective has helped, Mm. again, to Mm, have the permission to name that. And I love that because even within our Christian culture, it's easy to, when faced with a trial, to remind each other that, but God promises that through this, he's going to grow us in some way or we'll get some something, some Mm -hmm. benefit. 
versus that's true. So mm-hmm. I'm not saying that's not true. Versus really embracing the loss mm-hmm. and in the pain. And, and as I look back over the last couple of years through COVID, I think that's one of the big issues that that we we didn't do well collectively is embrace the loss. And there were so many small losses, huge losses, health losses, Mm -hmm. death. I mean, job, you name it. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the best things that that Aaron and I did, and we we just kind of stumbled into this, we would, you know, just to get out of the house, we'd go for a walk. And part of what we would ask each well, other. we couldn't go anywhere else. True, so yes. walking like, was yeah. a great option. Yeah. Mm. We'd put masks on our dogs <laughs> and we would head out. But we did say, what's what's a new loss that you've experienced maybe over the last couple of days or the mm. last week? What mm. has that been like? Yeah. I think that's one of the benefits now as we look back. That really taught me to better pay attention to just the the lot the everyday losses that mm-hmm. every one of us experience, the letdowns. Just making that okay to go, yeah. Well, what was that like for you? And just to care versus, well, now I got to solve this one mm-hmm. more thing that I got to fix. Mm-hmm. You know, as as mm-hmm. your husband, but that that made such a big difference. Mm-hmm. One of my friends who is also a therapist, we used to say, well, life is just one loss after the other. <laughs> Yeah, so that's a real positive way to look at it. But even in those seasons of loss, there are things to be gained. Mm -hmm. And it might be that I'm changing and growing and becoming more compassionate because of the loss. And so it's just looking at that, like you're saying, there's hard seasons. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it doesn't get better until we meet Jesus face to face. And But there's things that he's doing in us and through us. And I, I think that's part of preparing us to see God and growing spiritually. Like if I have two hands and I can only hold as much as two hands can hang on to earlier in life, my hands are filled with the dreams of my kids and the busyness of that and career ambition. And the Lord begins to take away those things that are good, but have too much, I have too much grasp on. Mm. And so with the losses, it's like, wow, I have have an empty hand here. I'm going to learn to hold on to God. I'm going to learn to put more weight into Him and more importance on my walk with Him to the point where you see those who are in their 70s, 80s, and further, there's very little in their hands anymore. Uh, what is What do they wake up to do every day? God still has a purpose, and part of the purpose is really preparing our heart for him being all and everything. And so there is a beauty in that that is what our faith points us to. That again, if we just get so enamored with how do we stay looking young and get the most out of this life, there's nothing good coming from our losses. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're one of my favorite stories uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, King Saul, his son Jonathan, God kind of gave him a vision of attacking the Philistine army by scaling this cliff. And when you get to the top, you're going to take on this whole Philistine outpost. Crazy dream. But he shares that with his young armor bearer. And as I read that story, a couple things hit me. Like, first of all, that sounds like the most insane you know, plan ever. And I could only imagine that young armor bearer wanting to go, yeah, but recently I have an injury to my leg. I can't probably climb or that uh, sleep on mm-hmm. it for a while or whatever. 
But I love his response when he hears this dream, in a sense, that God had laid on Prince Jonathan's heart. And so this young armor bearer says, you know, let's do all that you have said. I'm with you heart and soul. And in marriage, I think that's one of the best responses when, you know, when we move in and out of a different season and God will lay different things on our heart, different callings or different dream or even maybe a a new bucket list item that with Aaron, as I hear those things, and and we do talk about that. We talk about that quite often, you know, what, and I'll just ask her, you know, Mm -hmm. what's something new that you've been dreaming about or what's something you want to do before you kick the bucket? What's a bucket Mm -hmm. list item that I want my attitude to be, hey, do all that you just said. I'm with you heart and soul. Mm -hmm. But Jonathan's response was going, let's, let's climb up there and perhaps God will show up. Perhaps we'll win. It's up to him. But I love that word, perhaps. So it sounds like for you, as you guys have moved into this new season, I I hear that. I hear an open-handed, perhaps Mm -hmm. God is going to move. We'll just climb. We'll Mm -hmm. enter in this new season. I love that I'm also hearing that you guys have really joined together, sort of like that young armor bearer. I'm with you, heart and soul. Yeah. What, what's it been like for you as you've entered into this new season, even ministry-wise, that, that you were talking about, that your husband, Mike, mm-hmm. is now part of that with you? What, what has that done to you as a, as a wife? What, what's been the benefit of having him with you in that dream actively you know, how's that impacted your marriage even? Yeah, I have to say he's been with me way before today. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. I was uh-huh. actually thinking that yeah. because we were around 10 years ago uh-huh. when you begin to dream about authentic intimacy. And I know Mike was 100% with you. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, do this. Mm-hmm. And I know I'm sure there's been different seasons, yeah. um, rapids and smooth mm-hmm. sailing and on and on. Yeah. But what has that been like? Yeah, it's amazing. It, re- it really is. I I think earlier in marriage, when I really felt called, like I, I got my doctorate degree, I was excited to practice, I was excited to do all that God had laid on my heart as a young woman. And then we started having kids, and my husband was getting established in his career, and I really felt like God was telling me, like, put your ambitions on the altar and trust me with them and invest in your husband, invest in your kids. And I basically didn't work, you know, outside the home. I just did a very little counseling here or there. And I had all these visions to do the kinds of things that I'm doing today. But God asked me to lay them aside and invest in my husband, invest in my family, invest in my kids. And I think about that decision and how hard it was back then, not knowing if I'd ever pick up what I felt like God had laid on my heart and the ministry that God had given me a glimpse of. Man, this is just what I love to tell young women and young men. Like There are seasons, and there are seasons where God says, let go of your dreams. Trust me. Do the work I put in front of you. Invest in your spouse. Honor each other above yourselves. And it comes back. And now I see this amazing man who is saying to me, like, I see what God has given you to do. I just want to run with you. This Focus on the Family broadcast will continue in just a moment. After 11 years, Brett's marriage had gone stale. He wanted something better for he and his wife. 
focus on the families helped our marriage from the standpoint of opening our hearts to see things from the other's perspective and to make sure that God is centered in our marriage. I'm Jim Daly. Together we can give families hope. Donate at FocusOnTheFamily.com slash family and your gift will be doubled. If the fights with your spouse have become unbearable, if you feel like you can't take it anymore, there's still hope. Hope Restored Marriage Intensives have helped thousands of couples like yours. Our biblically-based counseling will help you find the root of your problems and face them together. Call us at 1-866-875-2915. We'll talk with you, pray with you, and help you find out which program will work best. That's 1-866-875-2915. Thanks for listening to Focus on the Family. Let's resume now with the balance of today's programming. Oh, I love that. I do too. That's a powerful statement. I just want to run with you because as we transition in and out of these different seasons in our life, the fact that that I know that you're running with me, that you're Mm -hmm. there with me, that we're doing this together, we're pursuing whatever God has next, Mm -hmm. and, and we may not know, and that's why for us, we, we've really prioritized. We've got to keep then dreaming together and figure out what, what's next as we enter this, this new season. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing more comforting to me as a wife, as a, a, a mom, a woman, that you are with me, that we're in this together, that I'm not alone. And I really do think that is such a part of the design of marriage that God intended. Yeah, so as we look to the horizon, so let's say we've entered into a new season or there's some transition, you know, that we're going through, boy, a powerful experience is to ask each other questions, to do some conversation starters around dreaming together. Mm -hmm. And so we have actually a big list and we'll put a link in the show notes, but that would be fun, Aaron, if you and I pull from a hat. So literally, if you could see into our studio, we have a hat. We've got some questions there. We don't know what they are, so we haven't had time to prep. So this is just kind of for us, what it would feel like us going out on a date and kind of doing this. So so number one, okay, Erin, this is for you. Okay. So are there things that you set aside when we got married that you would like to consider pursuing now? Yes and no, because I often when I look at my dream list, I realize that so many of my dreams have come true. And I know that you have been such a part of that. Because, I feel like I should be saying, oh, yeah, because you have supported me so much. I mean, one of the big things I wanted to do was travel. Then I wanted to get a master's degree. And you have walked with me through those dreams, traveling together, and just the opportunities that God has given us, as well as a master's degree. So well, I would say that a lot of my dreams have come true because of you. And and I love that. And thank you. And like I've talked about before, I want to be a dream maker for you and yes, your dreams. Which I love hearing that. But what I love even more is that you live that out. Mm. So it's not just words. There's actions that go with that. I mean, I, I love how you answer that, but for me, what what I saw that you really put aside was your schooling, becoming, 
you know, full-time counselor and really operating in these amazing gifts that God's given you. And I say this to you, I love bragging about Erin. She truly is one of the best therapists that I've ever seen. I've been around a lot of good ones, trained a lot of great ones, and and, and you by far are the best. But I say that only to go, but yet you put that aside. Mm-hmm. Like you, you felt so convicted in really believing God was calling you to for a season to mm-hmm. to really be home with our kids in and I'm so grateful because now I'm watching how you're just blossoming mm-hmm. going man what would that have been like <laughs> you know if this was 20 years ago that that you were really able to fully exercise all who God has created you and these amazing gifts that you have so I I want to say thank you well, for putting that stuff aside well thank you for saying that and I always smile when he says that because I personally think he is the greatest marriage counselor I know so okay fine we can I'll argue the about that no you said I am so I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna take okay that. now I get to ask you a question so what goals do you have for our marriage in the years ahead it's not deep at all <laughs> <laughs> um I the the biggest goal that I feel God really laying on my heart is I, I want to get so good at repairing conflicts after they've happened because you were never going to keep them from happening. And I'm grateful actually when we disagree and when we go through some, a, a challenging discussion. And I appreciate that because what we find in a marriage is that typically one pursues repair and one withdraws from repair. And Greg, you definitely over the years have been less likely or motivated to come and do the repair work. I'm usually the one pursuing that. So I love hearing that. All right, last one. So where do you hope to be in your career 10 years from now? That's a hard one, but where I could dream about, like if if there were no limitations, especially with time, if there were no limitations, I would pursue my doctorate and do some more education and continue building a private practice and supervising others and building kind of a marriage center. But also love that. what I love with what I do right now is I see couples and work within the private practice, but then I get to come to focus and do things like this with you and, you know, speaking and writing and all of that comes just hand. They work so well together. There's, there's such a synergy with both of those realms, but then also getting to experience that with you. I told you we're, we're inviting you to have a seat at the table. And so you were literally just at the table of our date. So this is the kind of stuff that we love to do. Yes, but now I'm hungry. I want to go on a date. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> well, now we're going to move to our weekly Q&A. And this is the part of the show where we answer your burning questions about marriage. Today's question comes from Caroline, who lives in Oregon. And this is what she had to say. Dear Greg and Aaron, I've been struggling with all of my kids being out of the house, but my husband doesn't seem to feel the same way. How do I talk to him about the loss I'm feeling when he doesn't seem to be struggling like I am? Yeah, I would say first and foremost, really stop the judgment. Because as I hear that question, I hear you even judging your own feelings like, I'm really struggling with this, but he's not. And what that does is it comes across is suggesting that he should be struggling in the exact same way that you are. Yeah, and the truth is there has to be room for both people's grief. 
And often people grieve differently. And so what an opportunity for you to be able to lean in and share, like, this is really hard for me. And I'm wondering if you're experiencing anything different, any grief, any emotion, you know, how do you feel about our kids being gone? Yeah, because, you know, for me, if you were to come to me, Aaron, so we, and we've gone through this. So mm-hmm. let's talk about this for a second. So three of our four have transitioned out of our home and, and two are married. One's in college. And, and that was, that was a hard season. And mm-hmm. we did grieve very differently, very mm-hmm. much like Caroline's talking about that mm-hmm. a lot of tears for you. Mm-hmm. For me, I don't see the tears that you're not grieving like, like I'm grieving. You're not struggling with Mm -hmm. this versus Mm -hmm. really asking something like, you know, what do you, what do you miss most about having kids in our home? Mm-hmm. Like that would be easy for me to talk about, oh yeah, I mean, I miss the the family time. I miss really that the, there's an energy when, when all of our kids are home together, just the, mm-hmm. the fun conversations, the way that we play together. Mm-hmm. And, and then you could even follow up with, with again, not, you know, how are you feeling or how are you grieving? But, but you could even say something like, you know, maybe what's been the hardest part of having our kids gone? Cause that would... I tell you wh- where that would hit me instantly would be that I I miss having some of my very, very best friends mm-hmm. with me full time. This is Focus on the Family with Jim Daly, and we've been hearing an episode of a brand new podcast from Focus on the Family called Crazy Little Thing Called Marriage. It's hosted by our colleagues Greg and Aaron Smalley. And That was a fascinating conversation, Jim, about why married couples should be more intentional about setting goals and growing together and even dreaming about the future of the relationship. And this is such a timely message because research shows that as couples go through different seasons of their relationship, it's pretty easy to drift apart if we're not careful. In fact, one tragic trend today is something called the graying of divorce, and that's where older couples, once they hit that empty nest phase, look at each other and typically it's wives that are filing for divorce saying, I really don't know you anymore. My job, our job is done raising the kids. And I believe our marriage is done. It's such a tragedy. And I really urge husbands and wives listening right now, uh, don't let this happen to your marriage. Put the hard work into strengthening your relationship each and every day. Invest your time and your energy so you can create a legacy for future generations of your family. And let us help you in that process. Yeah, we have so many resources. And uh, a great place to start would be by listening to the weekly podcast, Crazy Little Thing Called Marriage, with Greg and Aaron Smalley. As I mentioned earlier, they also have a book by that same title. And uh, we'll be happy to send a copy of that book to you when you make a donation of any amount to the ministry of Focus on the Family. Uh, Your monthly pledge or one-time gift helps us continue making great resources for marriages. So please donate today and know that your generosity is helping fuel broadcasts and podcasts. Our number is 800-232-6459. Again, 800, the letter A in the word family. Or you can donate and get a copy of the book, Crazy Little Thing Called Marriage, at focusonthefamily.com slash broadcast. On behalf of Jim Daly and the entire team, thanks for listening today to Focus on the Family. I'm John Fuller, inviting you back next time as we once again help you and your family thrive in Christ. You're listening to Focus on the Family's weekend broadcast.
We'll take a quick break here and then return with another faith-building program for your family. Stay tuned. Celebrate a lifelong love this holiday season with a special edition print created just for you by award-winning artist Morgan Weisling. A Lasting Love honors the enduring love and generational impact of marriage, which captures a sweet moment between a couple leaving church set in the Pioneer West. See it and get your copy of A Lasting Love at FocusOnTheFamily.com slash special print. That's FocusOnTheFamily.com slash special print. So all these changes are happening and they're very introspective. They just think about what's going on. They study themselves in the mirror, which is why you can't get into the bathroom. So that whole self-centeredness, what appears to be I'm the most important person in my world, is actually I'm not aware there's anybody else because I'm so busy trying to figure out who I am and who I'm becoming. That's Sue Acuna describing an important transition for your child into the middle school years. And today on Focus on the Family, we'll learn more about the unique challenges these kids and us as parents will experience during this important stage of development. Your host is Focus President and author Jim Daly, and I'm John Fuller. I remember going through this phase with the boys, and it was so much fun watching them grow up and seeing how their minds worked as they began to make their own decisions. But to be honest, there was some stress as well as Trent and Troy were Uh, testing mom and dad's limits and, uh, you know, trying to establish boundaries during that time. That's common behavior for these children ages 10 to 14 as they develop self-awareness and the awareness of other people and how all of that reflects on their own identity. Uh, There's a lot going on physically, emotionally, and socially during the middle school or junior high years. So we've invited a pair of experts to help us better understand how these kids think and feel and why they behave the way they do. Yeah, we recorded a conversation with Sue Acuna, who we heard from a moment ago, and Cynthia Tobias about this. Uh, Sue is a junior high teacher with more than 20 years of experience in education, and Cynthia is a well-known author, speaker, and educator who founded Applied Learning Styles. And together, uh, these two women have written a book called Middle School, The Inside Story, What Kids Tell Us But Don't Tell You. You'll get details about this book and find out more about our guests when you stop by FocusOnTheFamily.com slash broadcast. And now, Jim, here's how you began the recorded conversation with Cynthia Tobias and Sue Acuna on today's Focus on the Family. In your book, Middle School, The Inside Story, you said this right on page five. And I'm telling you guys, uh, everybody, if you have kids or you have grandkids in this spot, you need to get this book because it it's illuminating. Page five, right there, you said, these are critical years. Teens who don't have good relationships with their parents during middle school are going to have a very tough time in high school. That's right. That's what grips me, because I see perhaps some of that behavior that is nonsensical that you're talking about, Sue, that you see every day in your classroom, and you begin to panic. And the pillow talk between mom and dad begins to be, are we going to make it? What kind of kid will this be in high school? I mean, I'm worried. What are those key things we need to be understanding about where these uh, middle schoolers are emotionally? It it sounds silly and probably too obvious, but you really can't afford to take it too personally. I mean, this is what middle schoolers do for the most part. You just crushed moms, though. I know. Well, (laughs) it's a very normal part of development. And um, the three things that we say in the book that middle schoolers want more than anything else is to be listened to to be understood, 
and to be taken seriously. How does a parent begin to make that repositioning after elementary school, which is packing their lunch, telling them what to do, when to get up, when to wash their face, when to brush their teeth, all the chore lists that they've got. I mean, that's been the middle school and preschool years. Now, all of a sudden, you want us to talk to them like an adult almost. Right. So you've got a good illustration of, of becoming less of a manager and more of a consultant. We had a consultant a few years ago come to our school, and he gave us advice on what could make us a better school, but he didn't hang around to make sure we did it. And I thought, wow, that's what parents of middle schoolers need to do. They need to give advice, and they need to step back and let the middle schooler either follow that advice and be successful or not follow that advice and learn the consequences. Now, we often talk on the show about that hovering parent. It can be both of them. Um, that adds complexity to this because it's a hard thing to detach because you don't think they're mature enough. You just talked about the insaneness of middle school years and how ridiculous you know some of their emotions can be. So as a parent, you're sitting there thinking, I've got to stay close. And you're saying, be the consultant and kind of back up. That doesn't come naturally. Well, it's like relaxing your grip on the steering wheel but not taking your hands off the wheel. Hmm. They, they still need you. They'll always need you, but how they need you changes through those developing ages. So you can't afford to hang on so tightly, but you can't afford to let go either. And like you said, Jim, sometimes parents panic and they think I need to exert more control. I need to have more limits and more boundaries, which of course creates a child who chafes against that, who wants to rebel against that. Well, talk to me about that for a minute because it's natural. Let's say your your middle schooler is not getting the grades that you think he or she is capable of getting and you begin to apply more pressure. Now, I think some of that probably is reasonable, but there can be a point where it now you're taking the responsibility off of their back and you're wearing it as the parent. How do you know when you've gone too far? I watch for signs with the child when I have kids who are cheating. Cheating to me is not often a sign of a bad character. It's a sign of a child who's under so much pressure that she'll do anything to keep up the grades. Mm. Pressure think, from the parent. Well, yeah. and from themselves. Oh, yeah, a lot of times. But I think if you involve the child, a lot of times parents just make decisions. Okay, you're getting a low grade. This is what's going to change. Much better to sit down and say, you're getting a low grade. How do you think we need to change this? What do we need to do differently? What, what changes do you want to make? And remember, there's still wet cement and... There aren't permanent grades. The permanent grades don't count till ninth grade. That doesn't mean that you let them get by with whatever. But that means that you've got a couple, three golden opportunity years where you actually have grace. In other words, you can start experimenting with what, what works and what doesn't work because you still have a safety net. Until ninth grade, you've got a safety net. So you can sit and you can talk to them and say, you're having difficulty getting your homework in or remembering what you did. What do you think it would take? What would you like to try as a system to see if it works? And then that way, if it doesn't work and you fail, we'll try something else, but the failure is not permanent. Uh, that was the next place I wanted to go, Cynthia, was the fears that students have in the middle school years. And Sue, again, you're teaching, you're seeing them all the time. What does it look like? And what do parents not know that they're telling you, like you've said in your book, middle school, the inside story, what kids tell us but don't tell you? This is a perfect spot. What are their real fears that they're not going to share typically with mom and dad? You know, we live in a time when we actually have intruder drills at school. And you'd think mm. that kids would be worried about school shootings, but to them that's kind of remote. It's kind of happening in, in other places. They're much more worried about looking stupid feeling rejected. I think most of us can remember the pain of going into the lunchroom when your friend is absent from school and wondering, 
Who can I sit by? Where mm. am I going to sit? If I sit with these people, am I going to be rejected? Am I going to say something about a television show that I like and have everybody laugh and say, wow, I can't believe you still like that? That pain is very real, and it's something they face every day. Yeah. That's the number one fear, bar none. And to all the kids that we talked to, um, we, you know, at first they would tell us all the typical things they expected us to ask. And they would say, you know, fear of losing a parent and fear of, you know, somebody shooting at the school. And then when we said, okay, but like if, if really honestly, what is your number one fear if, if you really get down to it? And everybody said, looking stupid, mm. you know, having something go wrong and having people think you're stupid. And I remember that in, in junior high. In fact, if, if you want to refresh that for you and you want to tell your kids about your school experience, they don't want to hear a lot of stories, just pull out your seventh grade picture. Yeah, right. <laughs> and a picture's worth a thousand words and say, I remember how I felt and I remember how I was so self-conscious. And that's one of their biggest fears. And yeah. you know, Jim, this is a daily thing. It starts when they get up in the morning and decide what to wear to school. And if they have a school uniform, which a lot of middle schoolers do, then it's what kind of lunchbox do they have? What kind of backpack do they have? What does their hair look like? Because all it takes is for someone to say, nice backpack. And their whole day is ruined. What is it? What's wrong with it? How yeah. many other people don't like it? And now we want them to take an algebra test. Well, and yeah. you're saying something that is so prevalent in the middle school years, and that is uh, kind of the kids that are in the in crowd really are ruthless with the kids that are seen as the outside crowd. And that can be built around capability like the the sports kids, the kids that are the jocks or what have you. Uh, they can come together and they make fun of the non-athletic people. Uh, you have, you know, whatever, the good-looking class mm -hmm. that looks down on the not-so-good-looking class. It just adds incredible pressure to all the insecurities you already have. Now, let's go back to your three concepts or your three things that the uh, junior high, middle schooler really wants. You said to be understood. Uh, talk about what it means and what you mean by uh, helping your middle schooler feel that they are understood. What does that conversation look like? One big word, right, Sue? Yeah, empathy. Yeah. Empathy. Empathy. When, play that out. What does that look like? Well, when my son was in high school or in ninth grade, so he was fairly young, he came home from school one day and flung his backpack in the hallway and said, school sucks and I hate my teacher and I'm never going back. Well, what's a parent's <laughs> first reaction? Don't say sucks. And right. you're not okay to hate your teacher. And you have to go back to school and you should be thankful for the opportunity. What have you just communicated to your child? Your feelings don't matter. What matters to me is that you do what I tell you. How should they handle that? Oh, looks like you had a bad day. You seem upset. Something bad happened today. It's what I want my spouse to say when I come home and say, oh, I had a terrible day at work. I don't want him to tell me how I should feel. I want him to say, wow, you had a bad day. Tell me about it. Huh. Remember, this is a golden time, too, for them. They're figuring out from you, how do adults interact? How do they talk to each other? Because you're the one I'm going to look for. How does an adult function in the world? And so if you're talking to them still like they're a child, they're not getting any respect, and they're going to talk back to you, not with the respect that you want either. So again, you try to use your voice as respectfully, and you demand the respect. And by demand, I don't mean you will respect me. You just stop talking until they can speak back to you in a respectful voice. Uh, Cynthia, you're the one that wrote the book, The Way They Learn. And mm -hmm. I, um, you know, that, that is an outstanding book. And there's so much of that that plays into this. Temperaments is an easier right. way for me to say it. Parents have temperaments. Middle schoolers have temperaments, and the, the question 
question is, uh, some people that may have heard what Sue just said, you know, and that way to handle it through empathy, they'll struggle with that as a parent because, doggone it, they're under my roof. You're not going to talk like that. You're going to respect your teacher, and it's my rules. And they feel almost like that's a biblical approach uh, because, you know, Proverbs says, and fill in the blanks, you're saying that's not a very wise approach. Because Cynthia always asks that wonderful question, what's the point? And the <laughs> point is, is you want your child to become independent, responsible, kind to others, and how are you going to get them there? Certainly not by pounding on them with your words. And remember, you're not saying you don't have to if you don't want to. No, of course, I want you to be respectful. I don't want you to use language like that. I do want you to do your homework. But this is not the time to say it. You want to get there a different way. You're still going to get there. You're not going to lower accountability. You're not going to compromise on behavior. But if you really want results, then you use the empathetic approach to get there, and you'll get them. Mm. If you don't use the empathetic approach, you're not going to get there anyway. So is it worth it? You, in your book, you have a no-no list. Now, all of us as parents, we're going to think, that's right, these middle schoolers need a no-no list. But you're not talking to the middle schooler. You're saying this is the parental no-no list. Parents are surprised to you. What does it look like? These are things that parents do that keep their kids from communicating. Because one thing I know is kids really want to talk to their parents. Parents are often the reason why they don't talk to them, because they commit some of the things on the no-no list. Give me some examples. Interrupting. (laughs) Kids will say they think they know the end of my story, and so they'll interrupt. Yeah. Uh, Casting judgment, saying, did you think that was funny? Did you really think that was a good idea? Instead of saying, oh, I would have laughed too, but okay, really, we both know, you know, that wasn't a good thing. Not paying attention. Kids complain that parents will look at their cell phones while the child is trying to talk to them. And boy, you know, if your teenager does that to you, you're quick to jump on their case and say, stop looking at that thing. Talk to me. And one of the big no-nos, of course, is also on that list of three things about being listened to, being understood, being taken seriously. And so when the middle school child complains to you, and you go, you know what? That, that is such a small ball. Where do you get older? You'll see when you get a mortgage and a car payment, that's going to be nothing. Well, that why would I ever want to tell you anything again then? Because if my life is so insignificant compared to yours. So we just we forget sometimes. We well, overreact. That's something very important to highlight because you're communicating as a parent. My life and the adult issues are so far more difficult than what you're dealing with. Just shake it off. Come on, you're in middle school. You can manage this. I can manage this. Well, of course, as a 35-year-old, you can manage middle school far better than you did. But we forget that we went through it, too. And their life looks very different. We we did a a fun uh, little anecdote in the book because we were teaching a seminar in Hawaii, tough duty, I know. But, yeah, <laughs> but so, so one man who was a, a parent the first night, then he was also a teacher the next day. And we had talked about this being taken seriously and being listened to and stuff. And he said, I just have to tell you, he said, last night I made my 10-year-old son his favorite meal and I wanted to sit down and talk to him. And he said he wouldn't eat it. He wouldn't eat it. And no, nothing I could do would convince him to eat it. And he said, finally, I was so frustrated with him. I said, look, I'm trying to listen to you and I'm trying to take you seriously. Don't you want to be taken seriously? And his son said, no, I want to be taken to McDonald's. <laughs> it was one of those, oh, duh. Yeah, he didn't want shrimp cocktail. That's right. <laughs> this Focus on the Family broadcast will continue in just a moment. 
Hey parents, Parent here. If you're searching for biblical and practical tips for your kids' specific age, you know, with all that extra time you have, well, you can stop. Focus on the Family has weekly agent stage emails that bring the tips to you. Each week, I get an email for my son that I can read on my phone and put directly into practice. No more sifting through junk on the internet. I can focus my time on being intentional. It's easy. Visit MyKidsAge.com, add your kids' age, and get to parenting better. That's MyKidsAge.com. Thanks for listening to Focus on the Family. Let's resume now with the balance of today's programming. This is that time. There's so much change occurring for that 12, 13, 14-year-old. Um, what is the effect of puberty on the mind, the brain chemistry, the emotions? What's going on here? Because they are moving from being a little boy to being a young man or a little girl to a young lady. Um, how does that impact these kids? Wow, where do you want to start? Yeah. <laughs> well, you see it every day. <laughs> right. And and to begin with, we had a parent who said, I feel like I'm raising a narcissist because everything <laughs> revolves around her. And, you know, there we can see the physical changes, the growth in height and the change in body shape. And then mentally, they're thinking different thoughts. And emotionally, of course, they're all over the place. Spiritually, they're starting to ask questions. So all these changes are happening, and they're very introspective. They just think about What's going on? They study themselves in the mirror, which is why you can't get into the bathroom. So that whole self-centeredness, what appears to be, I'm the most important person in my world, is actually, I'm not aware there's anybody else because I'm so busy trying to figure out who I am and who I'm becoming. When you look at the effect of puberty on a child as well, I mean, now they're starting to notice each other, boys, girls, etc. Um, what does that look like in the classroom? The things they're not telling us, uh, <laughs> your book, you know, uh, what kids tell us but won't tell you. This area of sexuality, it's blossoming. What are they not telling us as the parents? That the most important thing when they walk in the classroom is not how will I do on the test today, but how do I look to the other boys in the classroom? How do the girls see me? Girls come to my classroom, drop their stuff off, and head right to the bathroom to experiment <laughs> with each other's makeup and, and check out the hair. And the guys go down the hall, and they're all jumping to see if they can touch the ceiling light. And I say, you know, if you bring that down, you're going to deal with the principal. But that's they're constantly measuring themselves and, and comparing themselves to each other and very, very much aware that the other sex is watching them in the classroom. What's a healthy way for us as parents to channel that energy? The best thing to do is always to hit them head on and talk about what's happening. You know, what have you noticed about the guys in your class? And, and most of the time, the kids will be squeamish. One thing that we found talking to parents is listen to how the kids are talking to each other. If they're sitting behind you in the back seat with a buddy, listen carefully, but don't make any comments. What does that the good sound thing like? Is, well, the good thing is he, they don't recognize you're in the room because they're in a bubble and it's all about them anyway. So if you just clam up, you're driving the car and the kids are in the back, just don't say anything and they will truly forget you're there <laughs> and they will start talking and you will understand better what they're talking about to their friends. It's the weirdest thing, but it actually works that way a lot of now, times. Now this is the perhaps the uh, lighthearted side of it, the normal uh, development of it, checking your makeup and touching the lights or the ceiling. But this is also the point where that middle school girl or boy, they don't feel like they're fitting in. Those children that aren't developing at the same pace, they're probably very vulnerable to 
social pressure, and what does that look like? Well, and it's tough because at this age, they don't have a lot of filters. And so it's not unusual for them to say something like, oh, look at Jim, he's still so short. Look at him next to Trevor. Yeah. He looks like a child next to Trevor who looks like a man. And and I'm always reminding them, you know, what was okay when you were in third or fourth grade isn't okay anymore because everybody is self-conscious. Is that a good thing for a parent to help that child develop a bit more of a filter? <laughs> to help the short child develop more of a filter or just to help all well, children? Well, just for your children to be mindful of what words do to each other. And that's something Gene and I will work on. Make sure you know you're, yes. what you're saying. And they, you're right. They don't always understand the impact of their words. And what that means to a young man who's not as tall as all the others, who is not taken as seriously. There have been studies that show, you know, even in the adult world, taller men tend to have more respect. And so when you're in seventh grade and you look around and everybody else has hit their growth spurt, or at least you think everybody else has hit right. their growth spurt, that other guy who's your height, he doesn't matter. You start to feel like you don't measure up. And remember, on top of all this, you, you as a parent, you want to try to do what you can to at least covertly protect their dignity to the best of your ability, you know, because they're they're gangly, they're awkward, they're running into things, they're spilling things off the table. So that only adds to their humiliation. It adds to their self consciousness. And so you want to be sure that, for instance, if you've noticed that your son doesn't smell very good. <laughs> You've definitely got this body odor. This is a book for reality, isn't yeah. it? Oh, yeah. I had a student a few years ago, and he was being raised by his grandma, and his mom had passed away when he was like 9 or 10. He liked to wear the nylon jersey shirts, and those hold the smell in. And so I pulled him aside. We had a really good relationship. And I said, you know, Tony, sometimes your shirt doesn't smell very good. And he said, oh, I, I always forget deodorant. So I said, let's come up with a code word. I said, there's a woman's deodorant named Secret. So I tell you what, you keep deodorant in your gym bag, and I'll keep it in my closet. And if I come to you and say, you know, Tony, I've got a secret, that's your clue <laughs> that you need to go clean up and reapply deodorant. And if you come to me and say, Mrs. Acuna, I've got a secret, I know you're really asking for permission to go and take care of things. It was a great system. <laughs> but that's a, that's a great teaching point, and coming from a teacher, uh, you know, teachers hold a very special place in all students' hearts. I do believe that. And when you have that good relationship, that's great. Parents can struggle with that. I think, you know, for us, we were more the direct route, Cynthia, where we said, man, come on, you guys, you got to smell better than that. Get out there and take a shower. And it sometimes works that way. Yeah, it, I mean, it, does, it did. But, but a lot of times it, you might want to take, again, the empathy approach or, or the sideways approach that says, boy, when I was in junior high, I remember there was this one girl and she always smelled so bad that everybody made fun of her. I always thought to myself, oh, I would hate to be that girl. So that's just kind of the little hint, right? right. Saying, well, I wouldn't want to be that girl either. I mean, you can go in sideways if you need to. Uh, you know, we've talked about the physical changes and the emotional changes and, you know, some of the humor and all of that at this age. But uh, spiritually, how do we help them understand the world they're in and the hopefully the heartfelt commitment, not just the lip service commitment that they'll make to Christ and to a life with him? This was part that kind of surprised me a little. I think it doesn't surprise Sue as much because kids talk to her about it all the time. And just spending this last two years with middle schoolers, I was I was a high school teacher, so I was always a, not as eager to be with middle schoolers. Probably a bit tougher, maybe. <laughs> yeah, and I was I just fell in love with middle schoolers spending all this time. But one of the things about spirituality, when we talked to the kids about spiritual and moral values, they talked more about that than they did a lot of other topics even. Interesting. 
because for one thing, they don't feel like they can talk to their parents about it because they don't want to freak their parents out. You know, so they don't want to be honest, right? Well, they're thinking they they don't even know why. Many of them said, "I'm having doubts about my faith, and I don't really know why." And and one thing that Sue will tell them: tell them what you say when they are worried about telling their parents about their doubts on their faith. Well, I tell them that. God gave them that brain. He gave them the power of reasoning, and he gave them the intellect, and he's certainly smarter than they are and big enough to handle all of their doubts and questions. So it's okay to come to God and say, I don't get this. Why should I do this? I, I'm angry about this because our God is big enough to deal with all of that. And it's a real honest thing? answer. Yeah, and they're, and they're so relieved. God doesn't worry about you simply because you have doubts, and they're seeking all these ways to kind of personalize their faith. And they ask her these questions, and they even asked us when we were together, why is there God? What if there is no God? And why do we go to this church? Mm-hmm. And what if I want to go to a different church? And if a parent is highly defensive and all worried that, oh, no, my child is going to, what have I done wrong? Then they're not going to talk to you about it. Man, this is good. <laughs> Cynthia, I mean, I'm thinking back how often I've blown it on different <laughs> things. Can you, uh, while your middle schooler is still there, is there a way to make up the ground that we've maybe given away as a parent? Oh, I think so. Uh, it's not easy. Um, I was sitting here thinking, remembering several years ago, we did a panel with, with different ages of kids, including a middle schooler and a high schooler, in front of a whole bunch of teachers. And um, we asked, one of the questions was, well, how do we help you be successful and feel good about yourself in school? And, you know, the kid spoke up and he goes, well, if you could just take the time to make me feel unique and special. And one of the frustrated teachers said, look, I got all these students. I don't have time to make you feel unique and special. And he, without even hesitating, this kid said, that's okay. You don't have to do it. You asked what it would take. <laughs> and, you know, as parents were going, oh, my goodness, all this is over, and I don't want to do it, and we, I need to take a shortcut. Well, okay, you can take the shortcuts. You can take your hands off the wheel. You can just check out. <sighs> but what it takes for success, it takes more than that. And mm. it takes some pain sometimes, and it takes a lot of time. And that, And I personally, and Sue and I both believe, that you really can't do a really good job of it without supernatural help without god without christ at the center of your marriage without christ at the center of your parenting you know what it takes that's what it takes and it takes a little effort to get there in void of that maybe that's the load that we're all feeling that that there's so much coming at our kids the culture social media sexuality it seems overwhelming and uh, you got to get in there and fight you got to fight for the soul of your child You're listening to Focus on the Family with Jim Daly, and our guests today have been Cynthia Tobias and Sue Acuna, and our discussion featured a fascinating book written by these two women called Middle School, The Inside Story, What Kids Tell Us But Don't Tell You. John, this was a fantastic conversation with Cynthia and Sue, and so practical for parents. Believe me, we know how complicated those middle school years can be, with puberty and body image and peer pressure and so much more more. Uh, Gene and I have lived through it with our kids, and the good news is you and your child will survive. What you need is a great resource like Cynthia and Sue's book, which we can send you uh, when you make a monthly pledge of any amount to focus on the family. We need your ongoing support to help moms and dads improve their parenting skills, build stronger bonds in their family, and teach their children about faith and character issues. Thanks to the generosity of friends like you, more than half a million parents were equipped in these important areas 
during the past 12 months. Half a million, that is great news. So a monthly pledge will really help, or a one-time gift as well. Anything you can give to strengthen and support today's families. Contribute today as you can when you call 800, the letter A in the word family, 800-232-6459, or you can donate and get a copy of the book, Middle School, The Inside Story, at focusonthefamily.com slash broadcast. On behalf of Jim Daly and the entire team, thanks for listening today to Focus on the Family. I'm John Fuller, inviting you back as we once again help you and your family thrive in Christ. Is your marriage holding on by a thread? For deep hurt, you need deep healing that only comes from the Lord. And you'll find it at a Focus on the Family Hope Restored Intensive in Michigan. Our licensed Christian counselors will help you and your spouse get to the root of your issues in just three to five days. And it works. 80% of the couples are still married two years after attending. Learn more at HopeRestored.com and talk with a trusted advisor. That's HopeRestored.com.